it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 212 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most beautiful and talented young actresses in the business and is currently the toast of Hollywood, Haley Atwell. The British-born 36-year-old is best known for portraying Peggy Carter, an officer with the Strategic Scientific Reserve and the love interest of Steve Rogers, in the 2011 film Captain America the First Avenger, the 2014 film Captain America the Winter Soldier, and the 2015 films Avengers Age of Ultron and Ant-Man, as well as the ABC TV series Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. in two episodes in 2014, and Marvel's Agent Carter, which ran from 2015 through 2016. But she is also a distinguished theater actress who has won rave notices on the West End. She has starred in art house films ranging from Woody Allen's 2007 dramedy Cassandra's Dream to British period piece dramas like 2008's Brideshead Revisited and The Duchess. And she has done some of her best work of all on TV in projects such as the 2010 Stars historical miniseries The Pillars of the Earth, for which she received a Golden Globe nomination for Best Actress in a Miniseries or a TV Film, and in a 2013 installment of the British anthology series Black Mirror, now available on Netflix, which features some of the best acting I have ever seen. Now, for her work in the first limited series adaptation of E.M. Forster's 1910 novel Howard's End, she is receiving acclaim as never before. The four-part project began rolling out in the U.K. last November, attracting massive ratings, but it only landed stateside on Sunday night, arriving with, and to most people living up to, great expectations. Atwell plays Margaret Schlegel, a cultured intellectual and mother figure to her two younger siblings, who experiences all sorts of drama in the years before the Great War. For her work, Atwell is very much in the hunt for an Emmy nomination, and maybe even a win, in the category of Best Actress in a Limited Series or a TV Movie which would be very well-deserved. But first, I was joined at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter by my friend and colleague Rebecca Ford, our awards editor, for a chat about some of what's going on in the broader TV awards conversation. Rebecca, thank you for coming in. Thanks for having me. So it's been an interesting week with ups and downs. It was sad for TV folks. Stephen Bochco, the guy behind Hill Street Blues and so many other things, passed away. On the other side of the spectrum, there have been just a host of Emmy hopefuls for this season that are being unveiled. I know Howard's End, which had done very well in the UK and which is the subject of this episode's interview with Haley Atwell, debuted here on Sunday night and we're waiting on the ratings still. That'll come out around Tuesday, but it did huge numbers in England, 
I think it could do pretty well here. We also have just come from a little visit with Henry Winkler, and he is one of many people who are raving about Killing Eve, which is another British production. It was BBC America, a limited series from Fleabag's Phoebe Waller-Bridge, also starring Sandra Oh. And then, of course, Roseanne, our hot topic of the last few weeks, had its second week, third episode, less political, still huge ratings. So that's a little of what's going on. What are you watching and following at the moment? Well, I'm trying to watch as much as I can right now, Scott, which, you know, there there's a lot. I am deeply in love with Atlanta. I think mm-hmm. it, the writing on that show is so smart. I think this second season is even better than the first, and I love the first, so I definitely look forward to that every week. I watch Homeland, which mm-hmm. I think is really great this season as well. Mm-hmm. I just finished watching The Assassination of Gianni Versace, the FX series, and I think Darren Chris is just spectacular mm-hmm. in that. So. Well, you were saying Godless, I think, oh, yes. was just recently not. <laughs> Yeah. Out the whole thing in I one in one weekend, yeah. I, I watched all of Godless, and and it's totally such an ambitious project. And I think Jeff Daniels is great in that, and he's great in Looming Tower. Yeah. So it's quite the year for him. So a and lot I was of really just great hearing about that. That I think he's going lead for Looming, Looming yeah. and supporting for Godless. At one time, it was looking like he was going to go head to head, but I think they figured that wasn't a very wise move. Yeah, it's smart to so, to do that. Yes. So he could get you know two times the love. Yeah, so that's great for him. Those kinds of decisions, you know, category placement and things like that are being made all around town at this point because we are about to hit the mark of two months before the start of voting. That's June 11th through June 25th. So people are coming up with their game plans. We actually learned in the last week that not totally surprising, but it was far from assured that Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is, in fact, approved as a comedy, even though the TV Academy a year ago sort of said that their default position on comedies is that if you're a 30-minute show, you're a comedy. If you're an hour show, you're a drama. That was always subject to appeal. And in this case, Maisel, even though it's alternates between drama and comedy, is going to be a comedy. So that was interesting. Also, though, campaigns seem to be starting really in earnest now in the public-facing side of things. And I just wondered what you've really noticed as far as just swag coming in, things around town, just the actual physical manifestations of these Emmy campaigns. Yeah, I think it's really starting in earnest now. This is sort of my first year covering the TV side of things. There's a lot of swag. (laughs) You know, we got this paint your own art thing for Picasso (laughs) uh, for the Genius series. And and that came in a few days ago. And then for One, one Strange Rock, the Nat Geo docuseries, mm-hmm. they sent over this like water bottle that had like elements of the earth in it, right. like a little crystal or something. They're really creative, I think, with what they give you to sort of drum up excitement. I got a life-size cutout for <laughs> McMafia that was literally as tall as I was right. that I like put at my desk for a day because I thought it was funny. So, well, yeah. there's been a lot of dial-in stuff this year, which is interesting. Oh, yeah. So mm-hmm. we got... Business cards from from the aforementioned Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. These are referenced in the show. This is Susie Meyerson, the Alex Borstein character, goes around with a kind of crappy business card. Here, if you call the number on the business card, you hear audio of the shtick performed by Rachel Brosnahan's character, Mrs. Maisel. Then, if you're driving around town, I've noticed the bus benches have a lot of the acting teacher played by Henry Winkler on Barry. That You call that number, you, you get some great stuff as well. So I guess when there are 500 scripted series in contention, the only way you can get noticed is to do something a little, I you know, either have great reviews, be a focus of a lot of 
promotion on billboards or whatever from Netflix or HBO and or do something really creative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was driving through Hollywood the other day and I saw one of those giant Mrs. Maisel business card things <laughs> on the side of a building and you're just like, well, you know, everyone sees that, everyone yeah. driving on the street. So, yeah, I think they have to be really aggressive in this sort of packed crowded group you know right well last year the unprecedented innovation in awards campaigning was the idea of the FYC space where really wealthy <laughs> content providers decided they're not going to just wait for a date that they get in a lottery from the TV academy to have an FYC event there and then try to have to sort of shoehorn their talent into that date and you know, it's a whole convoluted process. It's not easy on the TV Academy either because they have to try to accommodate as many as they can of, of these shows. But Amazon and Netflix a year ago said, we're not breaking any rules. We are just going to build our own or, you know, within existing spaces, build a space where we can, on any date that we want, schedule a Q&A with the stars of our show or a little cocktail party with, you know, or put our costumes on display or whatever. And it turns out, even though, there's not any way to tell that that markedly made a difference in their showings last season in the awards, in terms of their awards performance. They're coming back again, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just like this massive space this year, right? Like even bigger and better than it's been before. And yeah, they fly over, you know, the stars of the crown or whatever it takes to sort of get these people here and make it feel like a giant event. And, right. and they do get a lot of attention for it. Yeah. Amazon is going to be doing it again at the Hollywood Athletic Club for a fairly contained period of time. But Netflix, which went nuts last year with a, a very impressive space across from the Academy on Wilshire, this year is moving over to Raleigh Studios. We learned just recently they're going to be spread across three sound stages, encompassing more than 30,000 square feet, starting May 6th, running for five weeks, actually this year largely open to the public as well and then you just look night by night they have different stuff that does sound pretty cool it looks like they're going to get letterman coming in to promote his his new show my next guest needs no introduction which has had some amazing guests who did need no introduction but i mean if they can get letterman to show up and participate in one of these things that's going to be a big deal and so i guess it certainly can't hurt to have this right i mean it I guess it just is, again, trying to separate yourself from the pack. But for Netflix and to a lesser extent for Amazon, I don't know how much of a difference it makes when they each have so many good shows that they're promoting even within their own space that it's great so that each of those shows feels they're getting some form of promotion, but it doesn't really separate the best from the others, right? Yeah, I think, you know, the challenge for something like Netflix is they have so much, you know, Mm -hmm. you just... From Queer Eye to Glow to, you know, to the shows they've had on for longer, you know, it's just do they give more attention to sort of their newer shows, Mm -hmm. hoping this will be their breakout, or do they try to be fair and give everyone attention? And it's sort of like they have their own problem within their company of this amount of content, whereas we're dealing with it with, you know, all the networks and all the other streamers as well. So, yeah, I I don't know if anyone's figured out the answer yet other than just try to make yourself stand out more, you know. And even just within their comedy side of things, it's unbelievable. This year, I know they're going to be pushing, I think they've got Amy Schumer, they've got Chris Rock, they've Mm -hmm. got Dave Chappelle, and on and on and on. And I guess part of it is, you know, they're playing to a couple of different audiences because those talent need to feel that they're getting promoted in a cool way. But 
as a company, it would probably be better for them to play favorites and pick one or two that actually have the best shot. But we'll see. Meanwhile, on the broadcast side of things, Jimmy Kimmel, who's had a pretty amazing year between hosting the Oscars. You know, ratings weren't great, but it wasn't because of him. He's also had a lot of emotional, interesting social commentary about guns and all kinds of stuff. His son, again, that's been dealing with health issues. He got sucked into a mud fight with Sean Hannity that went on and on and on on Twitter. Sean Hannity acted very offended that Jimmy Kimmel would have made a joke about Melania Trump's accent. And then basically to go after Jimmy Kimmel, dug up 20-year-old clips from The Man Show as if that was the first time he's aware that Jimmy Kimmel had done that. I guess, meanwhile, it doesn't seem to bother Sean Hannity that Donald Trump, his best friend, has faced all kinds of actual accusations of non-consensual stuff. But regardless, do we think that getting into the mud with with this necklace sleazebag is going to help or hurt Jimmy Kimmel? Well, I think it helps, I guess. It feels like a lot of the sort of late night hosts are they have a backbone and are mm-hmm. fighting against some of the things that anger them this mm-hmm. year. You know, we're, we're already talking about doing a piece where we just kind of talk about what fights each of them has gone into in yeah. the past year, you know, and I think it sort of shows a bravery yeah. that maybe we haven't had to see before. For me, I think it helps, but, you know, I don't know. Maybe maybe there is such a thing as bad publicity when it comes to well, this. Well, and Jimmy eventually did sort of take the bigger stance and apologize about the Melania thing. I don't think Sean Hannity has it in him to do anything like that himself. Mm. But I think to the point about whether it makes any difference, I will just say that we've talked a lot about this and written about it, that in the year before Trump's election, Jimmy Fallon was the hottest thing in late night and Colbert was basically considered dead. Mm -hmm. And then things suddenly got political, obviously, for a lot of people when Trump won. And the guy who ruffled Trump's hair was not even nominated. And the guy who was, you know, in a politically smart way is taking him on, ended up making a massive comeback, ultimately losing to another political guy, John Oliver. But I maybe the takeaway is that people do want some social commentary, social positions in their in their late night hosts, even if it's not on the air with which is, of course, the case here with with Kimmel. HBO, though, is having an interesting season this year because on the comedy side of things, their big behemoth, which has won the last three years, Veep, is now out of contention. And on the drama side, their big behemoth that was out last year is back. So I just wonder, in terms of their other shows, how do you think this is going to impact things on the comedy side and then on the drama side? I guess starting with drama, you know, like you said, Game of Thrones is back and that's been the like clear front runner. So I think what's interesting is now they have their own show Westworld going up against it. And and, you know, Westworld is loved and critically acclaimed. But can it sort of go up against Game of Thrones, which I think is more impressive and more ambitious every year. And this past season was really great and is their second to last season. So, Mm -hmm. you know, do people want to just kind of continue to give it as much love and awards as they can before it's gone? And we're all sort of feeling the sadness that it will be gone, you know, relatively soon, I guess. So I think that's definitely the race when it comes to drama. And just quick aside before you go to comedy, that mm-hmm. on the on the Westworld side of things, it seems like they maybe HBO feels they really you know they can get two of those seven slots for drama series because they are not 
shortchanging Westworld at all. I guess they know Game of Thrones is pretty much, no matter what it does, that's in. But Westworld, they are being very aggressive all over town. There's massive billboards for Westworld. I saw Evan Rachel Wood had a huge profile in the New York Times this Sunday. They are doing a lot, clearly, for Westworld. And it did get the drama series nomination last year. It doesn't have a couple of the others that it had to compete against last year returning. So no Better Call Saul, no House of Cards this season. But there are other new shows there, so it's not a gimme, and I just think it's interesting that HBO's been so sort of robust in its efforts. But Mm -hmm. let's go to comedy. Yeah, when it comes to comedy, I think, you know, without Veep, as you said, there is this huge hole and opportunity for another show to sort of become a frontrunner here. And HBO has Barry, which is, you know, brand new and, and you know, new shows often do well when right. it comes to Emmys. And, and Very well reviewed. Yeah, very well reviewed. And then Silicon Valley is back mm-hmm. and I think is having a great season mm-hmm. of what I've seen so mm-hmm. far. And those characters are obviously fan favorites, even right. though there's no T.J. Miller anymore. Right, so, right. you know, I think HBO could do very well even without Veep. And, right. and that really says something about what they choose to do. Over yeah, there. two of the seven, again, they could still have. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, both Barry and Silicon Valley, I'm just cursed to me, I have, have Alec Bergen common. Mm-hmm. So that'll mm-hmm. be a pretty nice outcome for him. But ultimately, I think that even people at HBO would probably acknowledge that Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is the one to beat in yeah. the category. But right now, they're just playing for the noms. Lastly, you know, a hot topic for a few months in town as part of the larger female inequality, mistreatment type conversation that's happening in the industry. You know, we've been hearing a lot about pay discrepancies. And that really, I guess, started actually a few years ago with the Sony hack when it came out that Jennifer Lawrence was getting shortchanged, even relative to supporting actors like Jeremy Renner and Bradley Cooper in American Hustle. Mm -hmm. That was one blow. And then it came again we saw with all the money in the world when they had to do the reshoots, Michelle Williams was just getting terribly screwed in relative to her co-star Mark Wahlberg, even though they have the same agent that was joked about on the Oscars and eventually, you know, was sort of dealt with financially as well. But now it's affecting TV too. We learned not that long ago that the crown had been paying Matt Smith, Prince Philip on the show a lot more than Claire Foy, who plays the queen, you know, the most, central character in the whole series. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's just provoking interest, a number of conversations that are kind of interesting because the reality in that case, and you know, maybe with all the money in the world too, is that Matt Smith was a, I guess, better known high profile actor going into the show. So the fact that they were going to play comparably sized parts and she would have a slight, even larger part, I don't know that, you know, it's easy now to say in hindsight, it's worked that she should have been paid the same or at least or more. But does it make sense? You know, a lot of the argument with all the money in the world is that not many people have gone to movies in droves because Michelle Williams is the lead in it, even though she's terrific. But they do turn out for Wahlberg. Mm -hmm. What do you make of the overall conversation about this? And also in the case of The Crown or any others that this may come out with, is it helping the show to have this kind of dirty laundry aired in public? I thought The Crown was like an especially shocking piece of information when that came out. I think TV has an interesting opportunity because what they should do is probably, you know, after The Crown is a success and people are tuning in after the first season to see Claire Foy, then the second season, there's no way she should be being paid less. You know, she is that show. She should be, be paid more than him. And I think TV, 
you know, unlike film, has an opportunity when season two is coming around to reassess. Like, if that show worked and it is because of that actress, there's no reason she should be paid less. So I think that seems to be what a lot of executives mm-hmm. are now realizing is right. like, we can't just go on and, you know, after she makes the show a huge hit, mm-hmm. not give her the money, which is a shame now that she's not going to be on the next season right. since well, they're the switching out to new actors. So yeah. yeah, but I mean, she has a long career ahead of yes. her. So I think, you know, it's a super complicated issue. I I will say I've been booking our roundtables mm-hmm. and, and the drama actress race is there's so much talent there right. and so many women that do deserve to be paid as much as their, yeah, you know, no, co-stars. So I think it's definitely sparking a lot of discussions and sort of it being out in the open is such a unique position because right. that hasn't happened before. And I don't I don't mean to sound like Archie Bunker that, you know, obviously if two people are doing the exact same job, mm-hmm. they should be paid the exact same. I just think it's a little complicated when you're in a business where it depends on ticket sales or who's attracting ads or whatever because there are people that that attract and I, I agree with you that right now I don't think too many people are specifically tuning into the crown because or certainly not more are tuning in because Matt Smith versus Claire Foy but I don't know structurally how that would work I heard something about a tiered system where if you're one of the two or three people above the title and it goes well maybe then you all must go up I mean it's a whole complicated formula I don't even think we want to even get into it right now but that seems to be something that a lot of people are thinking about. And I imagine that, you know, there's a lot of two-hander series that are in the mix this year where more could come out and people are going to start looking at and asking questions about whether it's something like Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which I can't imagine she's not the mm-hmm. highest paid, but like that would be an egregious, un- indefensible right. thing if, if like her husband was being right. paid more. But I don't know. I guess yeah. we'll see if others come out. Yeah, I think Stranger Things we recently wrote a piece about how they're sort of doing a tiered yeah. pay system which seems to work pretty well for them you know so I, I imagine more shows are sort of gonna try to do it that way just to make it a little more fair and yeah. so they don't look ridiculous yes. if the numbers are leaked and so. then they have to pay anyway afterwards <laughs> yeah. they get shamed into doing the right thing <laughs> right all right rebecca ford thank you for joining us of course thanks and now for my interview with Haley atwell Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, Atwell and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them how a young only child who was very much a loner, not infrequently bullied, and offered conditional admission to Oxford wound up in a career in the performing arts, what she makes of the fact that she has so often been cast in period piece projects, and what it therefore meant to her to get to play a very different sort of part on Black Mirror, what the greatest pros and cons were of playing Agent Carter in so many different projects over so long a span of time, roughly six or seven years, and what she regards as the most meaningful feedback that she received for doing so, why playing the protagonist of Howard's End generally and doing so in a long-form format specifically so appealed to her, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Haley, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Sure. We always begin just, where were you born and raised? What did your folks do for a living? You have kind of characters for parents, right? Yeah. So I was born and raised in London. My mum is from Manchester, north of England, and she is a motivational speaker. That was kind of her main career. And then my dad was born in Independence, Missouri, grew up in Kansas City, and was a photographer and is now a massage therapist. And so they split up when you were very young. Mm-hmm. What 
implications did that have for you? You were only only child? Yeah, I was really young, so I didn't really know. I didn't remember it, so I don't know better. I, I do distinctly f- remember when I got older, them telling me that they'd made a decision that they would only speak well of each other in front of me. They absolutely wanted to protect my individual relationship with both of them. So, And that I kind of felt that the breakup was a, like a, a much healthier decision. Mm-hmm. So I was always, I respected them for that rather than trying to, you know, bring me up in, in an environment that had tensions to it. And so as a result, you would spend time in America too? Yeah, so I'd spend my summers in Kansas City. I'd meet my dad who lived in California, still lives in California and I'd meet my dad in Kansas City and we'd be with the relatives and hang out by the communal pool and catch lightning bugs at night, yeah. do kind of 4th of July celebrations which we didn't have in England so it all felt very nostalgic Americana was yeah. kind of my idealistic view of what America was with those summers. I wonder if you can share the, the root of your first name and also if that has anything to do with the fact that your folks, I mean, were they big into, you know, the arts or where? So I guess part one first. (laughs) Yeah. So I was named after a British actress called Hayley Mills, the daughter of Sir John Mills, most famous for when she was a child actor for things like Pollyanna and The Parent Trap and Tiger Bay and Whistle Down the Wind. And my mum loved her. So later Saved by the Bell, by the way. Oh, really? I think. Miss Bliss. There you go. go, And and now I believe is on stage in in New York. And so I was named after Hayley Mills. My parents didn't have contacts within the industry. They weren't actors themselves. Mm -hmm. But I do remember my mum taking me to the theatre a lot as a kid and there was this kind of magic of the lights going down and you're in a room full of strangers and something happens on stage with strangers in front of you that you by the end of the night feel in some way connected to and how magical that was to kind of for your imagination and I found it to be just really thrilling and really exciting and brave of these human beings and going, what a weird thing to do for a living and what a brilliant, they never have to grow up. You're just constantly playing. (laughs) I think that just gave me a taste of it. I've read a few things here that suggested that maybe partly because you were an only child, partly just your nature, maybe a little bit shy, Mm -hmm. loner. The way it's been suggested was the only time you kind of came out of your shell a little bit was when it was some form of performing or reading or whatever as a kid in school is that I mean where did that begin is that true yeah I mean I I was quite a nerdy kid quite a sensitive kid not into sports was into like books and drama Mm -hmm. but definitely not like confidently jazz handsy version I wouldn't <laughs> was not an extrovert it was very much very sensitive to my surroundings so I'd often observe I think more than anything else and I got the lead in the play when I was 16 of the Duchess in the Duchess of Malfi straight in with a bit of right. <laughs> heaviness for right. a 16 year old and Jacobean tragedy and I knew that the great Dame Eileen Atkins had played her and you know she's in the, you know the canon of great female characters and I just loved it I loved the language of it I loved being on a stage and figuring out how on earth to tell a story and what to do with my hands I was so (laughs) nervous what do you do how do you how it was like an exercise in how can you control your emotions onto a stage so that you can convey a different story to an audience and it was such a kind of a bizarre idea to me and I love the idea of it. So I suppose kind of a form of escapism into an imaginary world, you know, that I and love you, doing. And prior to that, the theatre going, I just thought it was kind of amazing that one of the most formative, I guess, trips to the theatre was when you were like 11 and who would that have 
entailed, if is this that, is correct. Is that Ray Fiennes? Yeah, Hamlet? I mean, this is crazy. You're later like the love interest of Ray Fiennes, and you're so here you are. Like, yeah. It's so weird. I'll tell you one story as well. There's yeah. an actor, a musical theatre actor in England called Con O'Neill, and in the 80s he was in this huge musical by Willie Russell called The Blood Brothers, which is still on in the UK. And I remember going backstage to meet him because my mum would always introduce me to actors backstage to thank them if I loved their performance. We'd stand outside and we'd like get the their floor. autograph. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And we'd wait, and it was... It was not so much like getting their autograph as a kind of, I wanted the chance to say thank you because of what that performance from a stranger to me in that short space of time had done. It was like a connection. So I remember going back and meeting Con O'Neill and I was seven years old because it was my birthday. (laughs) I got the amazing kind of opportunity to go and see this musical. And I went up to him afterwards and he was so kind to me and I never forgot it. And I thought it literally made my year that this amazing person who'd made me feel all these feelings was so nice to me afterwards. And years later, I got to work with him really? in a TV oh, series. That's, great. that's crazy. He was playing my boss in something and he couldn't believe it. It made him feel very old, obviously. <laughs> I don't think he was that enamored by the right. idea of the no, story. That's awesome. But yeah. yeah, and Ray finds again being someone else. So at what point did it occur to you that rather than going off to university and mm. You did get into a very good university, I believe, or you had an offer to Oxford, that this would be actually a career path. When did that first seriously occur to you? I think around the time when I was 16, I suppose, because you you have dreams about it as a child. But because I was shy and I didn't know anything about it, I, I had no kind of evidence to suggest that I could even entertain the idea of even studying it like I didn't know if I had any talent I didn't even know if you know I had the the nerve or the, the confidence to even go for it so I think when I did the Duchess of Malfi it was just the challenge of learning these lines in this Jacobean language and just staying on stage and not falling over yeah. was the first step of going oh it's a lot of hard work and there's a lot of high stakes involved, but I love this feeling. And it was around that time that, that I thought that I wanted to train as an actor in theatre. And I loved film, but I had no access to that world other than the idea of kind of running off to L.A. and <laughs> at the age of 18 and trying to make it big. And that scared the hell out of me. And I just thought that's probably not the safest mm-hmm. and smartest way of doing it for me at the time so yeah it was around that time I suppose and I think when I was doing my A-levels there'd been a lot of push from my teachers to study philosophy and theology at university and because I'm quite an analytical thinker Mm -hmm. (laughs) and by the time my exams were coming around and I'd had this offer I just knew I didn't want it and I kind of unconsciously kind of didn't do very well in my exams and didn't I said yeah yeah I think so I mean I just didn't get the grades that I was predicted and should have really gotten but I see it now as a huge like blessing because it meant you know I could focus on actually what I wanted to train was that tough at the time though did you get some grief for not going in that direction I certainly didn't get grief from my parents I think they were they always knew I wanted to be an actor and they valued that because I valued it so I think there was just more of a kind of oh my goodness, what do I do now? Like in a way of going, well, you've in a way got you what you wanted because now you've got the opportunity to actually go for it. But there's high stakes in that. You know, when you get the opportunity to, to go for something, 
you can buckle and go and find an excuse not to do it you know any especially anything that's creative the stakes are so high and because often it's connected to when you're young that just that real sense of a calling and desire that burning desire to be involved in the arts in some way and the, the stakes of maybe not being able to make a living from it can be terrifying to have to face so there was a lot of you know there's natural kind of apprehension at that time so between not going off to Oxford and then going off to drama school, there was a gap there. So what was going on during that gap? Two things went on. So first of all, I went to become assistant of a casting director. And that meant that I would stand, I would sit in auditions behind the camera and each as and, and help actors audition. So you were reading with people? I would be reading, exactly. But what was great about that is I would hear what they said, what the casting director or the director would say when that person had left. And what was fantastic was that the reading would be amazing and that person you could have given it their all and I'd be sitting there going, oh my God, this this is theirs. Of course they've nailed it. That's amazing what they're doing. (laughs) And they leave the room and the casting director and director might say something like, oh yeah, she's very good. I just, I think she's probably too short. Or, oh, her hair, I think we should go for blonde. Or, Or the equivalent of something that the point I'm making of being actually not necessarily to do with the power of the performance but more of what they were looking for and what their right. vision was and what it was helpful to me later on was to to start to try and develop the ability to not take things personally right. that it, that not to see it as a personal rejection that if I just concentrated on doing the best I could in an audition and left knowing I had done that then it was out of my hands what the you know result would be interesting yeah so it was it was useful and then the second thing I did was I went to the RADA summer school and studied Shakespeare for a summer you get a taste of what drama school would be like so you would do improvisation you would do Shakespeare vocal warm-ups you do dance you'd do various things like the Laban technique you'd find out about Stanislavski and you'd get to put on a little kind of show, showcase at the end of it. And that was a taste of the routine of what drama school would be. And that for me was just the 100% confirmation that that's what my next step was going to be. So you go off to Guildhall School of Music and Drama, which is in London. This Mm -hmm. was 2002 to 2005. Who were some of your classmates there and what were the biggest takeaways from that? It sounds like, not surprisingly, it was a pretty, you know, formative period. Yeah. So Michelle Dockery from Downton Abbey, mm-hmm. she was here above. And Jodie Whittaker was in my year. She, of course, is going to be the first female yes. Doctor Who. Which you did on the radio, right? Or something. Oh, you... yeah. I've done a few. Yeah, yeah, yeah I've yeah, done yeah. a few. Actually, on the ra- on the radio, I've played like, my character was the queen of the universe who also had OCD. <laughs> so she had was constantly scrubbing her skin. And as a result, she had no hair. Oh, <laughs> and God. that was the radio play part that I did in <laughs> Doctor Who. Yes. But that's a pretty it. distinguished uh, class. I mean, what yeah. was the, what's the, like, you knew even by the time you went in there that this was the direction you wanted to go, but the skill set, mm. even with stuff that might not seem obvious down the road, that it requires, like, mm. like, okay, mm. so people look at a comic book movie and they say, this is maybe not as demanding as a Shakespearean part. And yet, a lot of the actors who have been cast in those leading parts have been British. So what mm. is that about? It's just that you are ready to do anything by the time you come out of drama school? I think it might be part of the the mindset of drama school training in the UK that's very much centered around the ensemble and a work ethic that's based on the idea that it's very unlikely that you're going to be able to sustain a career in acting and therefore you better be in it for the right thing, which is the commitment to the craft and being good at something. And that love and desire for it and that skill set is hopefully going to sustain you at moments when you don't know what's going to come next. And 
so the focus is very much on the craft and in doing that I think it's sets you up for kind of a vocabulary of an approach to how you work and to take the craft seriously but not yourself seriously so there's real sense of you learn in Guildhall those three years were very much about learning lots of various different processes and techniques and then after that years you know you spend years in kind of apprenticeship of putting those techniques into practice and figuring out what works for you and what you need and is required on a superhero movie might be very different from what's required on stage or a literary adaptation of something for example or or the or a tv series that's been written as you do it mm-hmm. but essentially you've got a foundation there that is something to kind of get hold of when you're in the very new environments and you're going uh, I've got to take so many different new th- people and things in but I can go back to fundamentals of the training and know it's in there and that kind of gave me a little bit of confidence yeah. I suppose yeah security well, all that being said I think if this is correct the it's it's pretty funny that what's the first job out of drama school Prometheus bound which is a, a Greek tragedy with David Yellow. But even before that, was there possibly a commercial? Oh, that was to get it. No, that, <laughs> that paid was, for me to go to, to drama go school. To go to drama school? Yeah. That's the thing, because like, you're taking it, you take <laughs> it so seriously, and then you end up pitching yeah. like, no, Pringles? So, yeah, so when I, was, when I was working at the casting director's agency, I got an audition to go and do a commercial. I got a Pringles commercial, and Probably that paid for some nicely. of my education. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that enabled me to, to look, you know, to pay for the Shakespeare. There you go. <laughs> so... When you did come out of drama school, well, actually, even before that, I I thought it was interesting. I saw one of these profiles that I think was very early on in your screen career where it was sort of just like about having a realistic sense of how a person comes across, right? And just understanding how to work within sort of perceptions and whatever that, quote, I remember at drama school saying, I want to play that and that part and having teachers say to me, you're a pretty girl, you shouldn't deny that, and you won't even be able to play that unless you have a prosthetic nose, mm. close quote. Just that, you know, in yeah. terms of screen acting as opposed to stage acting, yeah. there's very different things you come up against. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you're talking about the kind of the conversation about kind of beauty, I suppose, within the industry, I think, you know, in England, you're, you know, it's very arrogant to kind of admit that you're attractive. So you downplay that or you trying to, you know, just not talk about it. But I remember kind of wanting to play the jailer's daughter or like preparing a piece of and going in and Patsy Rodenberg, who is our voice teacher, and she's the head of the the voice at the National Theatre and the Royal Shakespeare Company had said to me, you can't deny your beauty and you're going to be cast partly based on how you look. And thinking, yeah, that's kind of important to know. There's no point here in fighting against something. And I think it was also partly of, I knew that because this industry, because this world is obsessed with youth and beauty, that I might luckily from that get certain opportunities, which I'd be incredibly grateful for. But if I go down that road, that potentially could limit me and also in terms of longevity for my career. And it scared me because I thought if I become dependent on that and I'm getting jobs all the time because of just purely that. I knew that that point would run out. If I always played the beautiful part or the ingenue part, it would be that and then a gap probably of not being cast as anything and then the mother of the ingenue (laughs) part. And I knew that I didn't have enough range to know how what else I could offer, but I wanted to, I really wanted to work to spread it out a Mm -hmm. bit. And, you know, I wanted to be able to, explore all kinds of spectrum of human characteristics and emotions and complexities. And 
I found myself to be at times a boringly complicated human being and not, <laughs> you know, and it's analytical and, and that's annoying. But I use that in my approach to my work to try and find something else that's in it, you know. So it just my mind is occupied. Yeah. Otherwise, I get I get very restless, I think. I think we should emphasize, even though it's not the main focus of this, that you have even, you know, we're primarily talking about screen work going forward here, but you've continuously gone back to do stage work. Mm. Is that partly because you find that there are more opportunities to branch out to beyond whatever people's preconceptions may be on the stage? I don't know. I mean, I just love it. Yeah. I just, I love all, everything about it and I love working. So I'm always going to find something in whatever the job is to get my teeth into. And I remember Stephen Fry once hearing him say like, Work is more fun than fun, <laughs> and which I really understood. Like I find my work, it's not just what I do and then I go home at night. It's my passion and I know that it can help me grow and learn new things as a person and be kind of insightful to human beings. So I feel that the study of acting is the study of humans and that's infinitely interesting yeah. to me, you know. So I, I think it's, you know, when it just it just kind of... It's the opportunities that present themselves and then trying to be as discerning and navigate your way as much as you can in terms of taking a job that you think is going to be the most interesting or available to you. But then also there's a le the very legitimate choice of making a job because, oh, my God, it's it, it's filming in this country. Right. And you've always wanted to be right. there or going, oh, my goodness, I get a chance to work with Charlotte Rampling. That's the reason <laughs> to take it. Right. That it might not necessarily always be the character. Luckily, I've kind of grown into a position whereby I can be a little bit more discerning about right, what I right. choose to do. If we can, let's go through some of the most notable choices that you've made. You can yeah. maybe share just <laughs> what went into them. Mm. You mentioned the first one that I think really, I think it was the first one after school was mm. for the BBC adaptation of this novel, The Line of Beauty. Mm. You're playing a manic depressive character. Yeah. First thing out of the gate. How was that? First time on screen. It's thrilling and terrifying. And I was able to channel all my kind of lack of discipline and direction into her lack of discipline and direction. So playing at times she was incredibly petulant and provocative for the sake of it and wanted to create drama around her. So it, in a way, kind of gave me license for not feeling, for just feeling a bit all over the place and a bit of a flailing 20-something-year-old straight out of drama school not right. knowing what they were doing. It was really useful to be able to challenge that into her. Now, it was even before that had come out, out, I think, or been been seen yeah. that you hear about a casting call for a film that leads to your first film role, or what was the chronology here that basically where you wind up working for Woody Allen in oh, yeah. Cassandra's Dream, two thousand seven? Uh, yeah, so I had done a play in the West End with David Oyelowo, The Line of Beauty, and then I done I went to the Royal Shakespeare Company to do Where Women with Tim Pickett Smith, the late great Tim, yeah, and Penelope Wilton, and then yeah, it was just you know I was auditioning for lots of different things and got a call just to go in and I don't think I knew much if anything about it I'm not sure even if this stage if, if his name was mentioned but it was a matter of kind of going in and you say a few lines of dialogue that's not even part of a scene it's just to hear how you speak really and and physically how you are and get a sense of your personality and I remember coming out of it going I don't know what I just did <laughs> like I don't know what I was meant to do there was no it was seemed to be just kind of how I looked and how I sounded right. and but this is not for him this is for was it even for yeah, Juliet no it was, it was for a, a casting director in, in London, in London yeah. yeah and then I got the call saying that he'd like to meet you in New York and I think I was maybe one of obviously 
much fewer people that were called right. to meet me. So it was kind of, I couldn't believe it. You know, I was less than a year out of drama school and never made a movie never made a movie still feeling very much an apprentice and still being very heavily dependent on a director so that's the thing i think being spoiled at drama school is very much about the actor director relationship and relying on them to tell me what to do or to be able to critique me so i could learn you know at this point i wasn't didn't really quite have the confidence i think in inside to stand on my own two feet in terms of what i knew i was able to do so yeah it was just this kind of whirlwind i suppose just kind of coming Coming back from London, going, well, he's offered offered it to me. He did it on the at the at the meeting with him. Yeah, it was just. Those are supposedly always a bit awkward with him because he doesn't even he barely, from what I've heard, like barely speaks to some no. people. Yeah, there was not really. He said, you know, nice to meet you. I'm I'm a bit shy. I'm meeting new people, and I was like, it's okay. So am I. And he said, can you just read that out again? And he listened to my voice, and then he said, you know, you just wanted to know about more about my background, like where I was from, and that sort of thing. He said, well. Here's the script, which I'd also heard that he doesn't do. Yeah, right, right. He gave me the full script and then said, read it. You might not like it, but if you want it, if you like it, then you maybe you, you'll do it. Do you even bother to read <laughs> it before you like say yes? Or, you know, it's like, Woody Allen, I got to do it. Well, yeah, of course. You got to do it. Of course. Yeah, it's yeah. a, of course, I mean, 24-year-old. Right. I mean, it's what an opportunity. First, first movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I didn't, it didn't call for any comedy. It didn't feel in any way like a his kind of film. So it very much was an educational experience in terms of being on a film set. Well, and so just to come back to what you were saying a second ago, you're playing Ewan McGregor's character's mm-hmm. girlfriend, kind of the scheming actress. Yeah. And you said it was like, you know, on the one hand, it's a pretty big deal to be working with this guy. On the other hand, you're looking for some guidance beyond being an archetype of a character. Yeah. And there wasn't much coming. No, there, there wasn't. That wasn't the way that it was done but I had a such a lovely time with Colin and Ewan and they were just that their kind of amazing enthusiasm for what they do and natural kind of charisma just meant I just watched them like a hawk and Ewan had been to Guildhall as well so we'd gone to the same drama school so we had the same I suppose sentiment Mm -hmm. and sensibility towards it and I think I just kind of there was less for me to do on screen so I would just watch how they met their mark and where the angles were and why why it seemed like my first experience of working in a film set you get the sense of going there are so many people around <laughs> and I don't know who they are and I don't know what they're, what doing, they're doing but I yeah. don't right. nothing seems to be going on and then later on you kind of find out that you know we're just waiting for one person to, to sort out a light change <laughs> but you don't know and you think right. like I had friends and family come to visit me on set and just as kind of excited and wide-eyed as me and they were like what is going on <laughs> like I don't know it's not as exciting in the moment of no it's just right. like a lot of people going hey how you doing yeah okay so let's rig up over there and you're like oh right. oh so you know i was just kind of like a rabbit in headlights i think and trying to take it all in well the good part i think or the certainly undeniable part of being in a woody allen movie is that everybody's going to now see you and be you know who is this right mm. and, and so did you feel that anything directly came out of that like for instance i know a year later is both brideshead revisited and the duchess they may have already been in motion before Sandra's dream, but I would think that you probably felt some sort of a pop from working with him, right? Yeah, there was certainly suddenly press interest and certainly kind of calls from the States for agent representation. It was, you know, still kind of treading kind of carefully in it, really. Like it's, on the one hand, kind of from there's what it looks like from the outside and then the experience of the inside, Mm -hmm. you know, and suddenly feeling like, you know, I, I was really nervous about people who have kind of 
just at a very early age, just having so much really? at them and, and going, oh, it's so hard because wow, on the one hand, how incredible to have that. And then on the other hand going, you know, this could change my life and therefore the people around me a lot. So I was just kind of mindful of that, I suppose. And I confided in the people, personal people that I res- you know, respected. And I, I didn't, I think I just didn't lose sight of the fact that I still I felt like I had a lot to learn mm-hmm. and I I wanted very much to have the the space to still make mistakes and still figure it out as I went along rather than being like a, a face of something right, or right, right. you know being well, kind of caught up in like a, a fame kind right. of game you know well these were interesting both of the ones that I mentioned from 2008 and I would just a couple of follow-ups with Brad to visited this was the beginning of what I gather mm-hmm. has been a pretty important friendship mentor Menteeship hmm. with Emma Thompson, yeah. which obviously is kind of remarkable in light of the Howard Zen of mm. it all, which we'll come to. But yeah. I guess anything you want to say about that, but also if there's any veracity to the story here where you would have been about 24 years old mm-hmm. and this, I guess, was a movie with which Merrimax was associated. Mm-hmm. And that means the late Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> and I just wonder, you know, it sounds like there was some something that happened, not in the way of, I don't want to be, just in terms of verbally being inappropriate. Mm. Is that true? No, not from him. He had nothing to do with it. I mean, I'm very lucky that I had never been the victim of his abuse. And this was another uh, producer. And just kind of mentioning, oh, you know, well, you know, it's quite in the 1920s and it's more like the flapper era and drop waists and you're, you know, curvy. And so, you know, considering like losing weight. And, and I had been like, oh, yeah, 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 sure. yeah OK. Uh, I didn't know what that I didn't know how. And I was very healthy and I I was just kind of like, OK. And I remember going around to Em's house and she was kind of, you know, feeding us all as she does and, <laughs> and just kind of spotted that I wasn't partaking as much and I was like oh I didn't know it's fine it's fine, it's fine. Like, she's like, what? what's going on <laughs> and I was like well I just you know just suggested that I maybe also lose a little of, you know just because it's you know drop waist and it's a flapper kind of girl and I'm not really doing no, no. and she just went no 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 and kind of the rest is history really right. I mean, she, she, she you know she reminded me I think so brilliantly and I I'm so grateful to have her and other women in my life in that time and I hope that I can also be that for younger actresses in some way of just going you are an actor you are not a model you are an actor and what you bring and your talent is why you are here and if you give in to those sort of pressures for other people you're going to lose sight of of what you bring to this and you know I, I I'm all for just personal choice of getting healthy and doing what you want to do physically but if it's at the request of an industry that can sometimes be a little bit obsessed with that, then I think that's you kind of treading slightly, you know, turbulent waters there. And so right. M was was just I think reminding me of going like, don't forget who you are. Right. Don't forget don't you know, don't forget about your work ethic right. and your what you're here for. And just be constant just be good at what you do. And you certainly won't be able to function if your brain isn't working because you're not eating a lot right. and you're crashing on set. So then I was able to just get on with my job. <laughs> well then the the second of these was the Duchess, which for which you got a British Independent Film Award nomination? That was, I think, maybe the first time your film work had been recognized in, as an individual, right? Mm-hmm. In this case, I my sense was that the takeaway is you're working with somebody who's roughly a contemporary. In this case, the top of the call sheet would have been Kara Knightley, Knightley yeah. and that there was some value in seeing how you know a person conducts themselves at a young age when they are 
in that position. Mm, right? I think uh, she she blew my mind. She was remarkable. She came so prepared and mature and willing to be directed and wanting to be directed and so smart. It was amazing to see some, to see someone who had been doing that for years and was still so young. And yeah, I, I think it was between her and, and having Ray Fiennes involved and then having people like Simon McBurney who heads the Theatre Complicite and he had a part in it and as other supporting cast of fine British actors, it was we had a giggle. You know that was the thing that you. Know, on the one hand, you've got these people who work very hard and take it very seriously, but we had these great dinner parties. You know, and Dominic Cooper loves to have a, a <laughs> laugh, and it was you know there was a great sense of community on set in that way. Like we we spent when we filmed outside of London, we all stayed in the same house and and we ate dinner together. And you know she didn't have to do that. She didn't have to do that. I could have been put up down the road in another hotel <laughs> and she you know specifically made sure that I was taken care of as well and I just thought that was so tasteful and elegant and she got a donut truck for the crew at one point and I was like that's the way to do it that's you feed the bellies of really? the hard-working crew members and everyone right. gets happy yeah 2010 was a back-to-back kind of amazing thing here where you've got any human heart which wins a BAFTA award and then the pillars of the earth Eight episodes on TV over the course of 20 years, you're playing somebody which seems like it would have been a challenge, unprecedented at that point. And, mm-hmm. you know, to have to and also the evolution of the character is is just incredible over that amount of time, over the eight episodes. You get a Golden Globe nomination. I mean, what's changing over that time? Because on the one hand, clearly your public profile is growing and the industry mm-hmm. is more aware of you. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I read a thing where you're saying that you were maybe a little overwhelmed and also maybe even a little depressed about life as this was happening. So how do you reconcile that? Well, it just takes a minute. You know, when you make, when things happen and big changes occur and it changes your social situation and your relationship with friends and family, it just takes a minute to adjust. And I think sometimes, you know, their brains are so broad, you know, so, and our bodies are so incredible about how they choose to protect us you know sometimes I would just you know my body would disengage and want to want to go off and not be a part of it and I think that was a kind of a real blessing you know when I went to film Pillars of the Earth I just finished A View from the Bridge in the West End and I'd gotten an Olivier nomination for that and I think that was the beginning of I'd had good reviews for Prometheus Bound that first Mm -hmm. job and then I did Major Barber at the National Theatre after the Duchess and I'd done I'd work it in Royal Shakespeare Company yeah. and to have that sort of recognition from a view from the bridge was just it meant everything to me like it meant it, it was like being being welcomed into a room of people you had always admired and I think I got a taste of getting a sense of using that technique and overcoming any kind of sort of stage fright or nerves or insecurities that I would have or any kind of any press interest or any, you know, celebrity kind of labels and just working and doing a really good job and really enjoying mm-hmm. it. And that in itself was, you know, I that set me in kind of good stead. So every time I'd go into kind of environments that seemed to be a little bit more, you know, glamorous, I didn't lose sight of what that was. Right. And I was grateful for that too. But I just kind of, I'm, I just wanted to still be me. Right. You know. So... I guess this sets up what was the first introduction to you for by far the largest number of people, which would be a year after what we've been talking about, Mm. Pillars of the Earth, Any Human Heart, all that. Now you come to 2011, although it would have probably even been maybe even for you overlapping with Pillars of the Earth and stuff, because this 
I'm talking about Captain America, yeah. the first Avenger, which comes out in 2011, but these things I know will take a while. I mean, from somebody who was not that much earlier, not sure they like being in the limelight, it sounds like, yeah. you know when this opportunity arises, which I'd, I'd love to hear what the mm-hmm. genesis was, but clearly this is signing up for nothing but, or I shouldn't say nothing but, but a lot of limelight. Right. Yeah, I suppose. But I, I was kind of ignorant at it at the time because I get the call to audition. And also bearing in mind, like I'm auditioning for lots of different things, right. big, big profile jobs, getting recalls or screen tests, not getting some. Captain America for me at the time was another audition as a working actor. And you just go in and you do it. And I hadn't read comic books. And I, I Chris Evans, for me, was a gingerhead DJ in the UK <laughs> who presented a show called Don't Forget Your Toothbrush on a Saturday night when I was a kid. So I was like, oh, what? he's doing you superhero like, films oh now? Wow. <laughs> like, I, I just didn't know. But that was good because right. I didn't put any pressure on myself. Right. I just was able to go in and be kind of trying to be level-headed about it and do it. So I remember the screen test and I had to learn about 10 pages of dialogue and I went into Shepton Studios and they put me in hair and makeup, various tests and tweaked it as we went along and then they'd had a film crew that set up like a, a corner of the stage and made it look like part of the set and they'd given me 20 minutes to learn an unarmed combat scene of kind of punches and kicks and twists and turns should I just in order to see kind of my level right. of coordination right. and also my ability to learn choreography right, right. and that again that's when my drama school training came in like I knew how to do that I knew how to just launch into it you'd um, done stage combat kind yeah of stuff? so learning how to you know to protect yourself if right. you're doing a fight on stage right, right, right. or how to you know a bit of fencing we'd done and also I think I had to kind of show loading and unloading guns and to see if that was something that I seemed to be natural at or you know I think they're kind of weighing up like the likelihood that I'd be able to <laughs> right. be convincing right, as, right, right. as this and I remember just just trying to be really, really calm. I, it was so, it was so, the bit of production of the screen test itself was so big. Yeah. That, but they were so nice. They were so. It's just you or you're with Chris or who are you? It wasn't, no, there was no other actors. Yeah. It was Joe Johnson, the director, yeah. Richard Whelan, the first assistant director. Then all, of course, with the lighting and the sound and the costume and the makeup and at Shepton Studios on this with stage right. that we have. And you get picked up, you know, driver takes you to the set and it's, it's all f- the intention, tensions on you. <laughs> so all of this big production, and it's still just an audition. Mm-hmm. Like you still do all of this, but you still might not get it. And I think I kind of, I think we kind of learn, our character comes out in, in, in situations that are kind of high in, high intensity of stress or, you know, whatever. Like that to me when I walked in, just going, whoa. <laughs> but I noticed that weirdly I remain incredibly calm about it. And I remember doing the scene and I remember one of the auditions was the the telephone scene where, you know, she's she knows that he's going to die. And I remember looking at lovely Rich Whelan, the assistant director from behind the camera, and he was like he was getting a bit emotional as I did it. And I was thinking to myself, oh, nailed it. Nailed it. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, amazing. Exactly. Like even in my head, I was doing the scene. I was like, back in the scene, back in the scene. That's awesome. And then on cut, he was like, well, you, you got me. Well, you got me. <laughs> I'm like, oh, you're so sentimental. Um, but I left going similar to the only way that I've been able to, I think, make an audition work, which is to do your best and then let it go. And it and 
you know, like my dear amazing agent said at the time, she said, if it's your, if it's your train, it will stop at your platform. If it's not, it will just go on and somewhat, you know, another train will come in. But to not to, again, that kind of early experience of being in the casting director's assistant of not taking that personally. But because Marvel is, they put a lot of money into these things. They, I know they are very thorough about the whole casting process i mean it wasn't just that one audition was it there was probably a lot oh, yeah. of stuff that went yeah. into that there was there was initial auditions there was meeting with the director and then yeah that was like the third or fourth stage and you have to yeah. in that case i, I would believe train you know for quite so as soon as i yeah as soon as i i got it the agent called me up and said well i guess it was your train because <laughs> it stopped <laughs> then i worked with simon waterson who had been the trainer for Daniel Craig on the first Bond film and nice. yeah and it was it was to get me physically fit which I was grateful for because even in the end where I ended up doing a lot more physical stunts in my the spin-off show of Agent Carter right. but in the first one it was just what having kind of muscle tone gave me in terms of presence in a military environment like that I got why I needed to do it you know what I mean? And also just kind of creating that stamina of working those right. long hours on a set and also being physically able to at any time just going, well, I can I can add this here. I can do that if you wanted me to. So I worked quite intensely just getting really strong for, for the film. And yeah. it sounds like as far as just your thoughts about the character herself, like there's two sides of the equation. It's from what I've been able to gather on the upside she represents a, a great message for women in particular. Her superpower is essentially self-acceptance. <laughs> and her catchphrase is, I know my value. <laughs> that's a that's a great thing. Mm. On the flip side, it sounds like, and this was just to quote you back something that you said, quote, she's very much a vehicle for Steve Rogers to get where he gets to and for him to have some kind of emotional interest. There wasn't really much to her and what was asked of me as an actor, close quote. So how does somebody who... Again, classically trained, all this stuff. You know, you you now have to make a person interesting who might be a little less three dimensional than mm. you would have liked going in. Mm. But and you did. But mm. like, what's your secret sauce there? Just to care about her yeah. and it and him and the people that I was working with and try to to imagine that the stakes are high for her and that she has deep feelings for this man and this kind of who she sees as a kind of kindred spirit and that's when he's you know so-called skinny Steve in inverted commas <laughs> that she sees something fine in him that she sees a man who will put themselves at danger to help the ones that they love and isn't kind of a puffed up wannabe hero but it just has the natural qualities of one who just does what has to be done in the moment and I think you know I just believed that then that was kind of how I wanted to Peggy to be is someone who just could see something in him and even if it was to identify with limitations that he had had before he becomes Captain America as limitations that she has had kind of that her gender almost being seen for her as at times something that was disabling within the world that she worked in and, and I think you know she kind of had a quiet resilience and that was her way of coping but also what connected her to him. Do you remember where you were opening weekend and how quickly things changed in your life? I mean, as far as just not that you were anonymous before this movie, mm. but I would imagine it was a very different degree of recognizability afterwards. Yeah, I suppose that when I went straight back after the red carpet and did a play at the Royal Court, you know, <laughs> in, in tracksuit bottoms and a dog-eared script and grey cups of tea and neon right. lights in a rehearsal room. So... 
it was amazing you know, to see that kind of red carpet and to be on the red carpet with these movie stars. But you know, for me, because you know, it was a big, I, I think I had more of a sense of how much of a big deal it was for Chris mm-hmm. and how he had so kind of intelligently navigated his way through it with this awareness of knowing that that change will have many facets to it that you know his life won't be his own and that will affect also the people in his life too and as it would open up a possibility you know incredible amounts of power to do what he wants also would that potentially limit the kind of things that he he gets offered Mm -hmm. and I think I was more engaged in his narrative than my own really like I was just not really thinking about myself I didn't you know I, I still would walk out of the door and feel the same and be the same and do the same work in the same way and mm-hmm. but I was just more kind of I was just aware of the heat around you know him right. I suppose which you know I think helped to, to put any kind of new attention that was on me into its perspective right. you know <laughs> mm. for you aside from you know as you say you go right into the play but as far as again the film industry's or Hollywood's response to this, did you find that you were now much more in demand after this movie suddenly was seen and did so well when it came out? Or what were the sorts of things that you started to get offered after that? God, you know, it's funny, I can't really remember. Probably maybe a lot of girlfriend roles in horror films or rom-coms maybe. Was that demoralizing? No, not demoralizing, just as like, I don't think I'm going to be able to do a good job of this because I don't really know what to do with it. And my attention at that time, as soon as with Captain America, was the Faith Machine. And it was Alexi K. Campbell had written this piece and Jamie Lloyd was directing it. And I just loved them. And Ian McDermott was playing my dad and he was playing a man that had beginnings of Alzheimer's and dementia. And I'd not that long before lost my own grandmother to dementia. And it was about this woman called Sophie who is an investigative journalist and she goes out with a man who works for a pharmaceutical company who has been linked to kind of experimental drugs in poor communities and terrible moral, awful situations going on. So it's like this kind of incredible tension between her and her relationship, but also about having any kind of social responsibility, I suppose, and wanting to create change in a world that seemingly seems to be so kind of money-driven. And that story, and it might sound bizarre, that story in that little theatre in London was bigger than me or Hollywood or, you know, Mike Haley's career or my press, you know, my public persona, my brand. I just saw Sophie and I saw the world that she was in and I got to learn a little bit about pharmaceutical companies and the emotional psychological cost of being an investigative journalist mm-hmm. and that to me was an all-encompassing thing so uh, yeah I, I mean it's weird as well because you kind of there are so many things you don't remember because they're not they just didn't seem to be important was there anything that you really wanted that you went out for that did not work out in that immediate aftermath uh, in the immediate I remember I didn't get the other Berlin girl but that was before right um, right I loved Peter Morgan, who, of course, went on to write The sure. Crown. So I loved that script and I loved the book. And I, so I was sad about that. Any truth to Star Trek Into Darkness? I think I auditioned for that, maybe. That I think because I, that was JJ, right? JJ I think was, it was JJ. And, yeah. yeah. And I do remember having a Skype conversation with him. So there was that. And there was a, like a Jack Reacher film with Tom Cruise. And I mean, it's kind of weird, isn't it? I mean, maybe you find it weird that I don't remember. No, well, I, I will just say the reason I ask is that on a selfish level, I'm so happy some of those things I guess probably around that time did not happen because then we would not have had 
the one that I've been as impressed as any by you in, which was Black Mirror. Mm. And I mm. want to talk about mm-hmm. that for a second mm. because that is unbelievable. And yeah. I think like a lot of Americans, I've only been catching up to the party since it went on Netflix, which was after your season that you were part of, second mm-hmm. season, first episode there. This is the episode called Be Right Back. And I just thought the other thing that was notable about that was that the highest profile stuff that you had done up to that point had been even Captain America, period, right? Mm, yeah. And I know that from having had on this podcast, Kate Winslet, another great actress who early on, you know, I think maybe grew a little frustrated by the fact that for whatever reason, yeah. people keep seeing me in corsets and mm, whatever. Mm. And then in her case, I think it was Eternal Sunshine where somebody had a little imagination yeah. and said, you can do this. And she made it very clear that she could. Yeah. In your case, was this, I mean, was part of the appeal of Black Mirror that it would not be like anything up to that point? My involvement in Black Mirror went as follows. I saw the first season and my mate Jody was in one of those episodes as well. With Toby Whitaker, Kibble. Yeah, yeah. To Kibble. And, he, and I remember seeing it and, and hairs going up on my arm and going, I, I have to be involved in that. And I've never done this before. So this also marks a turning point in how I become more proactive, yeah. I suppose. Ask if I could speak to the producers about it. And I said, look, I think this is an amazing, amazing piece of work. And I've never seen anything like it. And Charlie Brooker is like this incredible mind. And please, would you consider giving me a part? I don't mind. I don't care what it is. I just want to be with you guys for a bit. And really interestingly, they came back and they said, we would never have thought you'd be interested. We're so delighted that you came to us because you just wouldn't be someone that we would naturally think to go to for something like this. Why do and you I think suppose that was? I don't know, maybe because the period stuff that I'd yep. done, maybe like yeah. Had I, that frustrated you at all that did you feel a little constrained that you kept getting period or that and were you looking for something outside of period or just worked out? Yeah, yeah, I was. I mean I, I kind of I know the audience will see it see it obviously differently because they visually will see a period but when I when I've chosen or been able you know been offered roles they've often just been I've liked the story or the character mm-hmm. something in them and then the period just happens to be the visual backdrop right, of it right, really right. and I think also I've loved done loved doing literary adaptations because you go back to such rich source material and like Restless and Any Human Heart both written by William Boyd mm-hmm. that for me is just I you know I can get my teeth into that and as an actor you know it's when people go so why did you choose that and I'm like well I was <laughs> offered it and I had to work like it's this you know I don't have at that point I didn't have that sort of leverage and I certainly as someone who is probably quite shy I didn't know what to ask for I didn't know what to go out and try and get I didn't I just wanted to be good at what the job was that was in front of me if you know if if I you know was lucky enough to get it which I think is a coming comes from quite a kind of a low sense of I don't know I mean I Anyway, the the turning point of going, I really want to be in this. I, it moved me so much that I thought, I've, I'm sure there's a way that I can get involved. And so they then presented the script of Be Right Back to Me when I was doing filming Restless in South Africa. Should we just give a quick, for anyone who hasn't seen this yet, just a quick yeah. summary. I mean, essentially, I think Black Mirror is, is like the modern day Twilight Zone mm-hmm. and Charlie is like Rod Serling. And just mm-hmm. that coming up with usually with a sci-fi fantastical approach to stories, but also, and it is an anthology series, so you can see them in any order, it seems like to me, the mm-hmm. the installments. And like Twilight Zone, it's like every episode, but I think particularly this one, because it was essentially you and Donald Gleason and that's it, mm-hmm. are 
great showcases for, you know, the actor has to rise to the occasion and you guys certainly did. But like, it seems that it can't be a coincidence that there's so many great performances throughout this mm. anthology series. And in your case, you're playing a woman who in, I think, the not too distant future has her boyfriend, maybe fiance, has been killed in a car crash. And now there's technology that exists to allow them to sort of be together in almost like a ghost-like way where you can recreate a person using their social media activity. So here you are with a simulation of your Mm -hmm. former boyfriend, and yet you have to communicate so many different things in the course of, what, like an hour? Mm. And just when did you know this was really working? When I read the script, the story's so powerful that it instantly helped me engage emotionally to that depth. Like, I think it was realizing that script of when you have great writing and I respond to it and I can jump in, I know what to do with it. If I have writing that's very exposition, I don't know what I'm doing apart from just mumbling a naturalistic dialogue. And I'm not really making a choice, so I don't know how to emotionally necessarily invest in it. But I felt with Black Mirror because of technically and structurally how the story builds how elegant how delicate these little subtle bombs are in a way these kind of big things that happen in such a simple chilling way and also because it's the the stories the way that he writes it do seem plausible often I mean ours was I think meant to be like seven years into the future so it's just like the iPhones were wafer thin and the tops on our coffee cups were you you press a button and it tells you when it's at a certain temperature so and your easel was pretty cool your, and the easel right. that she is an interior designer or in, a graphics designer and yeah the easel that kind of has a bit more of a computer screen version to it but it all still feels like the real world mm-hmm. so it's this it lures you into this false sense of security that we are here but then every so often there's a sudden turn and you go, oh my goodness, right, yeah, that's slightly different. And of course, Black Mirror refers to we are constantly surrounded with black reflections of ourselves from turned off computer screens and turned off phones and and that kind of reflection of ourselves and technology. He was very much exploring the relationship of that. And I felt that he early on had a very <laughs> clear cynicism for the lack of connection that one can get through technology or social media that tries to sell you the idea that it is you, we're more connected. We're more connected in the sense of selling of ideas and information, mm-hmm. but not human interaction. And so for me, the script of Black Mirror, although it has this sci-fi element to it, it felt that it was deeply concerned with very interesting social issues that I could relate to and that that in my own life kind of thrown by, you know. So it was easy to... When you've got good material like that, something just happens and something just... You just kind of feel, I think, you can trust it so it's easier to let go and know that the stories. You don't have to steer the story. The story will steer you if you let go and surrender to it. Well, whatever went into it, that's one of the great... TV performances of like recent times. So I hope people who haven't seen it should should check it out quickly. But then I thought it's interesting because you had a thing here where I think it was a few years gap between Captain America, the movie, and then Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. in 2014 and then Agent Carter yeah. 2015, 2016, where you're essentially revisiting a character who I guess we've to some extent we see that with the sequels with a lot of a lot of movies have sequels now where somebody will go back to a character. But for you to go from playing this character sort of 
frustratingly for the reasons that we talked about earlier to some extent in the movie version, but now get to expand that over in the case of Agent Carter, this two seasons on ABC. What's that like to go back to something like that, but now have so much more you can do with it? It was very acclaimed as a show what was your experience with it? Yeah, so after obviously in that time, there were lots of kind of bits and, you know, jobs here and there, but it was a very much kind of like waiting to, you know, working when I when I had to and then also kind of hoping that something as affecting as Black Mirror would yeah. come around or, you know, you kind of have these feel so spoiled in times of having, I'm just going, I just want to do this kind of material right, and, right. and we're looking around to see what else is out there. And also the couple of things had fallen through. I was quite, in, in terms of some independent films that I was, part of the development process and the funding would fall through or scheduling conflicts. So this kind of quiet period was just kind of a matter of trying to get things done really Mm -hmm. and going to lots of meetings. And I was doing another play in London called The Pride, Mm -hmm. again, written by Alexi K. Campbell, directed by Jamie Lloyd and then Olivier nomination and thinking, again, this very much feeds me and I, I need it and I want to continue just working. Mm. Then I got the this Luis D. Esposito, the vice president of Marvel at the time, he was such a champion of her, was so generous in his how much he would let me know how happy he was with the performance, but also that other people were too and that there was kind of a love for this character. He had said, you know, would you consider a show? And we shot this short film, like a like meant to be on the kind of the Blu-ray DVD Iron oh, Man really? 2 extras thing. And and it was, we had a bit of training and I loved it. And I loved the physicality of it. And I loved the kind of how kitsch it was, uh, slightly tongue in cheek <laughs> and how I had this like very sweet sentiment and... So we did that. And then and then you're kind of, when I was doing the end of The, the Pride, you're on this kind of holding period where you don't know if the show's going to be picked up by a network and you're waiting and waiting so in that time you can't commit to anything that you know would maybe run into the filming of this show so there's a lot that's not you just can't make yourself available for so it's a real kind of waiting game and I was kind of like sitting there just not knowing if it was going to happen so that was that was difficult for for someone who likes to work to kind of gone into holding pattern yeah yeah, like just a hiatus for a sec but it came through and then I found out that a really good friend of mine James Darcy he was going to be doing it with me and it was a different challenge though right because as you've referred to i think like sometimes they're writing just before you've got to go do it it's not like a play or a movie where you are going to have probably the vast majority of what you have to do out in front of you before you ever arrive yeah yeah exactly and the fact that also because you're you're under a time pressure and you have to get in a certain amount of scenes pages per day and you also know that it's going to come out at a certain time so there's that knowing kind of release date type thing what it did for me was kind of you have no time to kind of you have to go with your instinct and not think about it too much because by the time you've thought about it, you're on to the next scene anyway. So you just have to go. And I think because I loved the tone of it and I found the tone of it really just lovely and she's such a delight to play. And then having James Darcy as, as Jarvis beside me and then knowing that it was championed by Luis Esposito and Kevin Feige being such a, a support and having these writers like Eric Pearson, who now has gone on to, to be the main writer of Thor. Mm-hmm. I, we had him working with us. But the difference was... I was now driving myself into Disney Studio lot in Hollywood <laughs> with blue skies and palm trees. You probably had to move to LA, right? I did for the duration yeah. of the right. shoot, yeah. And I would just, you know, I'd put on the radio in the morning and I'd be like, this is 
this is insane. This is, <laughs> it felt like going to work was a movie. Right, right, right. right, right. <laughs> it felt like I was, I was filming from the, I was like living in a film. Right. And then, and I think also just the joy of being able to be on a stage and knowing that I would have time to really be able to relax on it, to get used to it, to understand how it worked, to feel comfortable enough to crack jokes and have fun and still be able to just deliver that dialogue. And I also discovered that I read, I learn lines really fast. I didn't, That's got to be a theater school thing too, right? I guess so. Yeah. I get, yeah, I guess so. I think I have, I mean, I, I have a bit of a kind of a visual memory in that I can, it, it, it's very quick for me to learn lines and also to, if someone tells me that something's changed I can quickly relearn it in their way and James was really he was just like God, that's so unfair because <laughs> of course it's a lot of it's a lot of dialogue hard, and every yeah. day it's a lot of stuff yeah. so, so I could I can make changes that morning in the makeup truck and then just go on and do it and still then have a giggle afterwards and so I think for me that was a really I learned that I could do that and I learned that I could naturally do it so I really kind of yeah I made them definitely the most of that first season of really relishing that all this work and all this preparation had now led me to this really just this very joyful experience with essentially, you know, connected to this huge franchise that for me had just been a positive one. And they'd been so kind to me and that there was no kind of direction in terms of ultimately what I was doing, there might have been like, could you try one where maybe she's, she feels this is more like that. And as opposed to like basically, basically any kind of who I was, I felt was welcomed and accepted by them. They wanted me, they right. wanted what I brought to it and they trusted that I could do it. And I was very much left alone to do that. Just to button up that topic, between the film and TV versions of Agent Carter, you and Peggy developed a very passionate following. And I wonder, just to use one example as a bit of a microcosm of how that came across to you, how you felt that and realized that and what it meant to you, who was Georgina Callender? Mm, I thought you might mention her, yeah. Georgina was a young girl, was about 18 when I met her, 17, and what comes with being in superheroes or anything of kind of sci-fi world, you get invited to these conventions and you meet the fans. And I like doing that. I like the experience of it because it's one of the things I like about theatres. You get a sense of who you're talking to. And I think I got into acting because I wanted to connect with people. Like I found it a way of being connected to people. So the one convention I did was in Blackpool. And I remember this kind of a group of group of girls and that what I was always kind of loved is that the girls who had been able to create friendships through their love of a particular show in this case Peggy Carter and through social media had can kind of all over the world kind of come together connected in this social group for their shared love of it and what more actually for what it stood for and what they related to and they would say send me letters like you know I didn't I didn't really have many friends or that understood me but thanks to finding other people who like your show and like still be believe what Peggy Carter believes about knowing your value and self-acceptance I've been managed to find this friendship group so I found that really really cool I have a picture of myself and Georgina and high-fiving and um and then I got I woke up one morning to loads of messages on social media of friends of hers and she was named as the first victim of the Manchester terrorist terror attacks. This is the one where the Ariana Grande comes yeah. from. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I just remember just kind of being really shocked and really uh, I just, you know, couldn't you know, just couldn't believe it was happening. It's, it was such a scary time because it seemed like terrorist attacks were happening all over Europe and 
when this one happened and I got these messages from all of her friends, there was just kind of like, just a, you know, I just felt like it, my life, you know, just took on a different kind of focus at that point. So they called themselves the Crazy Dotties, <laughs> as in their love of, of Dottie Underwood, another right. character in that. They very, you know, remarkably, you know, they'd, they wanted to get together for her funeral together. So they managed to, I was kind of discussing with them help, like I was able to help one person who wasn't able to come over, I was able to help her come over. And so they all got together and they all had come together for the first time in a long time and to commemorate Georgina and to go to her funeral together. And they all wore yellow because they'd nicknamed her their little sunshine and she was, cause she was always smiling. And then I met a couple of girls after that who'd gone to the funeral at conventions and they'd, they'd written me letters and, and kind of seeing Peggy as a symbol for them. I didn't feel like it's about me. Like it's they their connection to each other through what they relate to in this character and my portrayal of her is important to them. And so I'd get letters and they were very much telling, telling me about their lives and... And, you know, I, I, I find it that makes my work, it really does get, kind of give meaning to my work to have those moments. Because also I remember being young and, and being truly affected by certain things that I'd see. And like my mum, you know, encouraging me to go backstage and meeting these actors and getting the opportunity to go, thank you, because you made me feel this way or you made me think this thing. And I'm now open up to a story that I, I didn't know how to have access to before and a language I didn't have access to before. And in this moment, in this story, we're all together. We're not divided. I'm not a different class from you with a different level of education. We're just human beings having an emotional experience to the same thing. And so I know what it can feel like to relate to a character in that way. And yeah, I was very moved by it. I was kind of aware of, I think I suppose I started to kind of be aware of having impact yeah. and knowing that the choices that I make and the work that I choose to put out there has an impact. Agent Carter comes to an end and almost immediately you go into Conviction, mm -hmm. another big network TV show that was a, a short-lived thing, but it was, a, I'm sure, an interesting experience to have to be carrying, again, a, but a very different time period, which, you know, anything you want to say about that, but then I think this has all happened in fairly quick succession where you go Agent Carter to Hayes Morrison to what we are mm. now here talking about, Margaret Schlegel yeah, in Howard Zen. How quickly did that happen and how did Howard Zen cross the radar? This is for anyone who's catching up to the conversation here. And I guess really in America, this is going to be, we're going to be putting this out on Monday. So this will only be rolling out on Sunday night. So yeah, yeah. this is going to be very fresh for mm -hmm. people listening. Mm. Talk to us about just how one leads to the next leads to the next. Yeah, I was in Canada and I got the call from my agent saying, you're going to get an offer for something that I think is extraordinary. And I can't tell you what it is right now because the offer hasn't officially come in because he was, he was just like so excited to tell me. And I was like, oh, what is it? <laughs> and then he called me and he said, Kenny Lonergan is adapting Howard's End and they want you to play Margaret Schlegel. So Kenny Lonergan, who I just, just seen Manchester by the Sea right. and the thought of combining Kenny Lonergan with E.M. Forster... I was like, I was, what? That's amazing. And then finding out that he had initially just went, well, uh, mm, I don't know about this. Here are all the reasons why I shouldn't do it. And then Colin Callender, the producer, turned to him and said, well, actually, they're, they're exactly the reason why you should. You know, seeing it from fresh eyes and as from as an American and not necessarily giving reverence to the nostalgia, the romanticism of it and making it fresh and, and real. And again, you know, I, I, although visually it's a period piece, it's just such an incredible story. And the 
my goodness, Margaret Schlegel. When I told Emma M about it, I said, they, you know, we're, we're going to do this. She said, <gasps> she's like, oh, you're going to love playing her. She's such an amazing person. And I get to live in that head for a bit. And I remember speaking to another, another actress going, oh, my gosh, I love Margaret Schlegel. She's incredible. So the period drama aside, it's, it's a woman who the circumstances that she finds herself in are... <laughs> Are limited. They're a woman of Edwardian England. She she can't. She doesn't work. She lives on a certain amount of money that she's inherited. She's in that privileged position. But we worked out that it's about thirty thousand pounds a year, which is a very very nice amount of money to live on. But it's not ostentatious. Mm-hmm. She has to work on a budget. You know, we're trying to figure out who she was in regards right. to society. Right. But what's interesting about her is that she's an independent mind. She has this kind of kind of open mindedness, whereby she has incredible self awareness of where she is and her social position. And yet she has these big ideas, these conversations about philosophy, social reform, art and literature, whether it's all a load of bosh, as they talk about, or whether you know, there is something to be said for being able to engage in the conversation about shifting classes in society of that time. And, and also the relationship between her and her sister being one of such incredible love and how they navigate their lives together when they're essentially two sides, different sides of the same coin. Margaret is someone who is, she's rational and she's educated and she's calm and she's emotionally intelligent. And you have Helen who's full of passion and emotionally reactive to things and the sense of justice and how they have such opposing views, but ultimately their love for each other is what connects them. And I mean, I'm not kind of, doing it justice really I'm not articulating kind of like the ultimate soundbite that's going to make people who don't like period dramas see this but people are watching this going it's so beautiful it's so beautifully done and not beautiful in sense of a you know aesthetically wistful kind of like oh we're so gorgeous from this (laughs) angle kind of look it's just humanity in such a tender and compassionate and an intellectually challenging way and it speaks to the present in a lot of ways like it's not not timely. I mean, this yeah. was even if it's set shortly before World War One and mm. all that. To have there's a lot of things about her and what she's dealing with that I think are applicable. But I just wonder for you as an actress to work in this particular format. You've done the play or the movie, which is its self-contained short thing. You've done a series where it's fairly open-ended. Here you've got four installments, which, by the way, just for people who are I mean, this has already rolled out and been very successful in November and December in the UK. So for yeah, you, it's that... Been, it's been nominated for BAFTA. Got to get that. Oh, congrats. There. How great no, is there that? You go. How nice is That's that? That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so what is it like, though, to have four hours to play with a character, yeah. four installments? Just it seems like it's different than anything really up to this point. Yeah. I mean, I guess Pillars I mean, we, do, we did feel like we were, we were shooting a film because, again, you, you film out of sequence. So, in fact, the third day we shot the most climatic scene, which happens at the end of... of episode four <laughs> I was st- and Hetty McDonald the director went I'm really sorry to have to do this for to you but because of locations we're going to have to start actually oh the, the f- end of the first week is going to be that scene and it's the scene and in a way what's great about it is that you, you're thrown into the deep end and you know so we knew pretty quickly after we filmed that scene where the story was building to in a way 
So it made it easier to objectively to, to pitch other scenes in other moments. So you just have time. You have, you know, four hours ultimately to, to tell the story. And we had, you know, Kenny's adaptation is so specific. He writes musically, like he writes, you, the, the, the comma is there for a reason. And if I haven't honoured the comma, Hetty will go, there's a comma in there, that's not a statement. <laughs> and I love that, you know, it goes back to my, that sense that we have in British theatre of like the writing being really important and good writing tells you how to perform it. As an actor, you bring your instincts to it and you, you have a dialogue with the writing. But if it's an active writing, as so much of Kenny Lonergan's work is, then it gives you creative choices to act, to make. And it's so thrilling to play that. And it's, for example, having, you know, an 11-page scene where you have five different characters speaking and the whole, it's really hard to read because you just, it's just loads of, this different character speaking at the same time with loads of slashes of when we're meant to be overlapping and you kind of get it almost looks on the page like a musical score where you go the, the violin comes over here and that is going on for quite a long time but in fact the saxophone's doing something funky over here for a little bit and it doesn't feel and stilted because no of the there's air and there's yeah, lightness yeah. to it and that kind of Teddy was like there's no no period drama acting allowed there's no it can't be mannered it has to have it has to feel like these are real human beings so well, you said even the costumes are not as tight or things as are corseted or th- it doesn't feel like you're or look like your normal period yeah of well we, we do things like understanding social etiquette at the time is really good so you know for example right. at a dinner party you don't put your elbows on the table but of course once the mute the food is cleared feel free to do that right. so we were like let's see some water women with their elbows <laughs> on the table and right. at one point having my like hands behind my head and leaning back on a shay long and just thinking rather than kind of sitting there with perfect posture with an arched eyebrow kind of delivering a line and now you deliver yours and i deliver mine back and then i i look kind of wistfully out the window and we cut <laughs> to them to a nice landscape shot right. there's there was kind of a lot of life in it yeah. that, that i think kind of is what's written in the book did you feel a special kind of kinship with this character versus others i mean there's there's a interesting theory that i've come across i don't remember who who it was but like no matter how good the actor is you cannot fake intelligence and this is a character who is very intelligent and you obviously are as well and it comes across here even when she's not saying anything Hmm. she knows what's going on Hmm. she's figured everybody else out in the room do you feel with this character more than others or maybe there's another one but just is that what made this kind of fun for you that you tapped into this person yeah that i i respected how like how intelligent she is and knowledgeable and educated self-educated she is mm-hmm. because she wasn't able to go to school so that gave, just gave me again going back to kind of being restless i suppose and analytical i love being given a lot to do i feel calmer <laughs> when i have more to do i'm not sitting there with my nerves because i can't think about myself i'm th- i'm just doing i'm acting I'm in another person's world and story so and that's where I love to be and that's where I love to to work and where I feel my most free and so having someone like Margaret who I mean M was telling me you know read you know read physics books read 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 hard material and try and understand it challenge yourself intellectually with puzzles and games so that you feel active in your head in your mind and and I agree I think that Margaret she's even when she's not speaking, there has there's such a rich inner world. And I see it, you know, I saw it with, I think Emma Thompson is someone who's very much like mm-hmm. that as well. There's such a rich inner world going on, such an amazing imagination and a curiosity and appetite to learn things and to engage in the world that I saw in Margaret too. And I certainly look for in kind of the people I want to kind of learn from, yeah. I suppose. 
Yeah, and I, and I think just her, but her, the size of her heart and her compassion is matched by the size of her intellect. So she's not, doesn't come across as kind of superior or snobbish. She's just trying to work it out yeah. <laughs> in a really kind of just simple way. <laughs> well, so the last question is just, this is about, we're on the, literally the eve of the day of this hitting America, right? Mm. How would you describe where you are at this particular moment where, you know, how you feel about just the big picture? I mean, Mm. and we've gone through a lot of it, of what's led up to this, but, you know, this is, I think a lot of people are going to find one of the, one of the best things yet that you've done. Mm. It's going to potentially get well, let's not even, I mean, just <laughs> the, no, no, no just, uh, <laughs> so I guess just basically, you know, it's exciting, nerve wracking. How do, how do you feel in this particular moment? I feel that I did it well <laughs> in that I committed to it and I knew that I had found a place in my career. My found a way to approach my career where the, it's love of the work for the work's sake and of course recognition and amazing reviews of but with that you know you are also susceptible to the bad stuff and i remember my mom was loving a quote she was used to say try and be independent of the good and bad opinions of others and i really i try and do that it's very very hard of course because we loved doing it we'd love to see you know we'd love to see it warmly received but again it's not that's not my business it's not my in my control you know i have going back to additional um photography and Christopher Robin and then I go on to play a villain in something and then I go back and do a play and so I'm working until December now so in a way I'm not kind of waiting to see what the reaction of Mm -hmm. Margaret is going to allow me to then do I hope the knock if anything I would love the knock-on effect of this if people have seen me doing something that's turns my my trajectory into a slightly different angle would be amazing that it hopefully would open me up to opportunities that weren't there before in terms of working with different filmmakers and uh, working on modern pieces if they could (laughs) dare imagine me out of a corset (laughs) i do own jeans guys and you can swear and I can so yeah. I, I mean, heard. every Brit can right. swear, you know, and we get away with it because of the accent. Right, 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 right. <laughs> but less so about kind of the recognition for this. What would be amazing is to, as a result of this, I can just carry on working. <laughs> that's what I love, and that's what I want to do. Thank you very much. Appreciate Thank it. you. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.